Okay, uh, let's turn to Daniel uh, chapter uh, 12. We're going to wrap up uh, Daniel this morning. And um, as we finish up, Daniel, there's there's going to, in, in the end, right, We what we've done is, is we've looked at Daniel and we've obviously seen that there is clearly uh, eschatological end times events being described here. What we've done is we've limited, in many respects, our understanding and our study of those things to what Daniel says. And, and obviously that we've made the connections that needed to be made, but there is more to say. And there is yet uh, further revelation that happens in Scripture in regard to the end times. So just because we've studied through one book, and, and not to, to make light of it, Daniel is one of the key uh, books, especially the last three, four chapters. Well, even before then, from chapter 7 to chapter 12, really is a key book regarding prophecy and the end times. And there's a lot of heavy lifting done here, but not everything is described and not everything is, uh, is given to us. And we're going to see that here in our, the remainder of this chapter that's addressed. So I'm just saying, don't put it on the back burner. There is more to uncover. We've tried to do justice to the book of Daniel, not prophecy. Our goal was to study through Daniel, not to explain every in and out of the end times and eschatology and those kinds of things. So if there are questions yet, we can have those discussions. Remember that Daniel is apocryphal literature. That's what it is. And the purpose of apocryphal literature isn't to tantalize us and incentivize us to go and dive in and study scripture. It is to encourage and to challenge. It is to encourage and to challenge. That's why God gave it. That's what its purpose is throughout Scripture. And we, we talked about that. So we pick up in Daniel chapter 12. We have the continuation and, and the conclusion of this prophecy and this vision that Daniel has. Let's start here in verse 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Okay, so we have this description of these angelic beings, and I just want to uh, clarify that, right? If we go back to Daniel chapter 10, which is sort of where this vision begins, and we look in verses 5 and 6, uh, Daniel says, And I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with the fine gold of Euphaz, his body was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. So here's Daniel, and he sees this angelic uh, being. Now, we made the case that this was probably not a Christophany or a theophany. This wasn't a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, not everybody thinks that. We base that upon what we read in verse 14 and the interaction that happens between Daniel and this, uh, this angelic person. Uh, because in verse 14, that's uh, not verse 14. 
Uh, oh, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in 20 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, and I remained there with the king of Persia. So there's, there was this delay in his coming to Daniel because of the, because he was held up. And so we had, he, he had to get help. And we concluded that if this is Jesus Christ in his glory, there's no way that some other angel is going to, to hold him back. And so I, we, we, I concluded that this was probably just an angelic being. And we find that also in, in uh, that it's the same uh, context, same uh, vision happening here in verse 1 of chapter 11. Also, I, and the I is not Daniel. The I is the angelic being that is talking to him. I is the first year of Darius the Mede. Even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And we talked about that, that, that it in many respects confirms the spirit behind these nations that are being, uh, being described and as we've looked at them through the, through the book of Daniel. Now, the question that he asks, or the question that is asked, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Right? How long until everything that has been described here, this coming together of the enemies of God, this enemy nation, uh, worldwide government, this one world religion, this persecution of Israel, the, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation, how long till all of this comes to pass? And we don't really get us uh, an answer, so to speak. There, there is an answer given, but we don't get a specific date. And so when, when God explicitly does not answer a question, we can't imply upon it anything other than Scripture would further reveal. And I'll give you this, that nowhere does Scripture tell us the date. Nobody knows. And anybody that says they know is probably got a problem. I mean, unless it comes to pass. <laughs> but we don't know. And that's the long and short of it. We don't know. And as we, as we come to the end, as we look at uh, Daniel's concern, as he looks at this, we're going to find that that's really okay. I mean, if the point of apocryphal literature isn't to give us all the answers, it's to encourage and to challenge us. So he asks the question, how long until all these things happen? We find in verse 7, the only answer that we're going to get. Verse 7, and I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river. This is the one that we read about in Daniel chapter 10, who, who is clothed in the gold of Uphaz and has the barrel-like skin and all of those things. <clears throat> and I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So I want you to notice here that there's a proclamation made. It isn't just that he says, well, here's the answer. He raises both hands and he says, uh, <clears throat> And he swears by him that lives forever. So he swears by God. He says, listen, this is what it's, it's going to be for time, times, and a half. And when all, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. We're given an event, an answer to the question of how long. 
And, and really, as we're going to look at here in just a minute, I think it's the same event that we've, that's been discussed. If we don't have any exact dates revealed, that's still not happening. This is the only answer we're going to get. There are going to be signs of the times that we live in, but there's not going to be a date. But don't miss the proclamation. This is a substantive event happening here. You know, normally, right, when you swear an oath, you raise your right hand. This guy raises both hands, right? And, and he's not swear. He, he swears by him that lives forever. He swears by God. In other words, there's something that is unchangeable in this decree. It's not going to happen any other way. It's not subject to any other. Why do I bring that up? Because in the times that we live in, and, and really probably every generation since this has happened, since Daniel has happened, has said the same thing. But the times that we live in, the uncertain times, and we see all these things happening, we hear wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff, we think to ourselves, when? When is this going to happen? It's the curiosity that gets the better of us sometimes, and we become so focused on that that we miss the big picture. God is, in fact, at work. And it's unchanging. Though the circumstances around us may change, though the circumstances around us may seem to be outside of God's control, as we've talked about more than once through the book of Daniel, they are perfectly and sovereignly in his hands. And he's doing whatever or allowing whatever is happening to accomplish his plans and purposes. And we read that much here in this verse. He makes his proclamation. He swears by him who, who, who lives forever. This is a certainty. This is something that's going to happen. And not only that, but he concludes, when he shall accomplish to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. There is a marker. Okay, we have this discussion of time and times and a half. That's the same three and a half year period that we've read about multiple times throughout the book of Daniel. We find it again in Revelation. And it marks the second half of the tribulation. This is the great tribulation. This is where the persecution of Israel escalates substantially. And we find that it's marked by a particular event. If we jump back to Daniel chapter 7, for just a moment, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. We have the description here of this, this beast, and he says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And there shall be given into his hand until a time and times in the dividing of time. So there's going to be a three and a half year period where that particular beast that's being described there, that is the Antichrist, the same beast that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. 13? Pretty sure it's 13. Uh, it's, it's one and the same. And he gets a three and a half year period, effectively, where, where he gets to persecute heavily Israel. We're going to talk about that for just a little while. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Again, the same thing, and he shall confirm the covenant. This is speaking directly about the Antichrist. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And remember that in Daniel chapter 9, we have Daniel 70 weeks. And what's being described here is the last week, that last seven-year period. Uh, and, and in the middle of that, in the midst of that week, three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. 
So remember, at some point, the temple has to be rebuilt because they're bringing sacrifices and they're doing the worship and those things in the temple that they're supposed to be doing. So at some point in the midst of all this, the temple is rebuilt. That's a, that's a substantial event. And then in the middle of that covenant period, the covenant between Israel and the Antichrist, he breaks the covenant and they can no longer bring their sacrifices. And in fact, what we find, as we studied through the book of Daniel, not only does he make it to cease, uh, and for the over, it says, continues on, and for the overspreading of abominations, you shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. In other words, he's going to set up an idol there in the temple, and that's going to be his place of worship, as it were. And that's going to remain until Jesus returns and all of this comes to a conclusion. Okay, so how long? We don't know how long. But ultimately, God's purposes and will to condemn sin, to purify Israel, and to overcome Satan are accomplished, and then the end comes. Those things are three things will happen before Jesus' return. He's going to condemn, condemn sin, which he's continually condemning sin. He's condemned sin since it existed uh, in the garden. But he's going to continue to do so. And not only is he going to do it individually, it's going to become a national thing. Because here we have the, na the nations coming together, assembling themselves, creating this one world governance that is completely and directly opposed to God. And so not only is he going to do it against you and I individually, he's going to, it's going to happen nationally. And that's a substantial thing. And he's going to purify Israel. We talked a little bit about that the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about it again this morning. He's going to purify Israel, and he's going to overcome Satan. I mean, Satan's already overcome. He's already lost. right? But what we're, what we're going to find is that the battles will be fought, the victories will be won, and they're not just going to be those spiritual battles. It's the spiritual reality of Jesus being the victor, taking physical manifestation. He talks about here in, 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 in that Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 7, as, he, as he's talking about that, and one of the events, we have that three and a half year period, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, I'm convinced that this is a reference to the Antichrist and not God himself, and I base that upon Revelation 13, 7. Because here we have the Antichrist, and, and we read it back here in, in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Uh, Daniel 7.25, that he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. The beast is going to overcome, and if we turn to Revelation chapter 13... If you want to turn there with me, Revelation 13, 7, as we're talking about uh, this, this dragon, right, which is the, the beast that's described in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, it's the same. It's the Antichrist. That's who it is. We get to verse 7, and it was given unto him. So, I mean, just note that, right? And I think we mentioned this when we were here before. It was given to him. 
this isn't like he's getting, he, he isn't, he may think he's winning a victory, but this is God's purpose. God's will is being accomplished in and through even his enemies. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. All power, all tongues and nations, all kindreds. There's nobody. In other words, he is the leader of this world. And if you stand against them, you're going to be killed. And we, we looked at that. There's that description of those who would stand against them and them being uh, beheaded. But here we have that same description. And he shall, when he's accomplished, scatter the power. That word power, that's the strength. It means the hand or the might. So whether it's militarily or whether it's in numbers and, and Israel's just decimated to the point where they can't even stand an army, whatever the case may be, However that is defined, and I don't think that we have a clear definition, many scholars think that it is a military thing, uh, but I, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It might be something else. But no matter how that, what that is, it's scattered. It's broken, and that's what the word scattered there means. It means it's broken. No longer uh, do they have the strength that they previously had. And at the end of that is when Jesus returns, when this concludes. So when the question is asked, how long? The answer is ultimately when God's purposes are accomplished. When Israel is purified, when Jesus returns, that's when it's over. That's when all of this stuff concludes. And we look at that and we think to ourselves, you know, we would love to see him come tomorrow. Now, I don't know, there's probably some things left undone. I don't know that he's coming tomorrow. But I also don't know that those things that, that maybe aren't done couldn't happen very quickly. Like I said, the temple at some point has to be rebuilt. Haven't seen that happen. Now there's, anyway, there's things that may factor into that. Like I said, we're doing justice to the book of Daniel. I'm not talking about every eschatological nuance that exists. How long? God's purposes are going to be accomplished. That's what we have to understand. That's what's being described. That's the encouragement that Daniel is receiving. That's the encouragement that we should take away as we look at what is happening in Daniel, as we look at what's happening in the end times, as tumultuous as they may be. And it's cliche to say it, but God wins. He does. And not only that, but we win in the meantime, if I can just say it that way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means that the worst it gets for you and I as believers is that we get to go to heaven. And to live, for you and I to remain here, absent of being taken out of this world, to live is Christ, Paul would say. We get to represent him. We get to be on his team. We get to be his uh, ambassadors in the world around us. We are pilgrims in this strange land. This is not our native country any longer. Our life is hid with the heavenly. That's why we're pilgrims, right? We're from somewhere else. We have the opportunity to be those soldiers who are behind enemy lines, as it were. And I realize that maybe that doesn't sound real glamorous. It's a, 
Well, that's yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> but there it is. We are his boots on the ground, so to speak. And we should count it an honor and a privilege because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We're not fighting that physical battle. We're not taking arms up necessarily against how did they overcome? As we read in the book of Revelation, how did they overcome the beast? Well, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by his word, his testimony. They weren't taking up weapons. They were overcoming him with the things that we have already been given. So as we stand behind enemy lines, as we stand in enemy territory, occupying in many respects until his return, we have everything that is necessary. But it behooves us as believers, as we read in the book of Ephesians, right, to put on the armor of God, to make sure that we are equipped for the battles that we were inevitably going to face. Even though it's inevitable that we're going to face them, it's also inevitable, and don't miss this, that we're going to win them. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. In fact, it's more than sufficient. There's nothing that we did in the past that couldn't be covered by his grace. There's nothing that we're going to do tomorrow that won't be covered by his grace. And there's nothing in the midst of our lives that his grace isn't sufficient to support us and strengthen us through. We have that assurance. We have that certainty. We don't know how long all of this is going to take. Especially in Daniel's day. I mean, we're closer than Daniel was. We've had thousands of years of history of past. How long? We don't know. But it will happen. Daniel asks a question in the next verse because he, he receives this answer and he doesn't understand fully. And so I heard, he says in verse 8, and I understood not. Daniel didn't understand. Then said I, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? So Daniel asks a different question. He doesn't ask how long. He says, what will be the end of these things? In other words, what are the markers of the events? What are the events that surround the end? What should I be watching for, in other words? And I'll just tell you that what we find here in Daniel, the things that are listed here, aren't all the things that we should be watching for necessarily in regard to the end of time. It's not all revealed in the book of Daniel. We have, not, we have thousands of years of prophecy after Daniel, much of it, entire books of it, in fact, dedicated to the, to the idea of what is going to happen in the end of time. So there's more there. Uh, one thing that we haven't even mentioned, but is definitely connected with this three and a half year period, are the witnesses of Revelation. Because in that same three-and-a-half-year period, initiated by the abomination of desolation, at the beginning of that, we also have the witnesses taken up into heaven in a three-and-a-half-year period. So there are other things to be watchful for. Uh, listen, I don't think we're going to be here to watch any of that. Okay, but that doesn't, this is dealing with Israel. What Daniel's looking at is dealing with Israel. But I'm just saying that there's a lot more to eschatology, to end times things than what we read in Daniel. But he asked the question, what? Not how long, but what? 
which is probably a better question to be asking and, and something more to be familiar with than when. Because we're never told in Scripture when. Jesus himself says no man knows the day or the hour. But what, he did, but what he did say is when you see these things, then you need to do this. So the what is a much better question to be asking. Now let's look at the answer here. Jump with me to verse 10. It says, many shall be purified and made white and tried. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the, from the time that the daily sacrifice be taken away and the abomination that makes it desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Okay, so the passing of time, we have a description of the passing of time. Many shall be purified, made white, and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, which has been true since. The beginning. So we have this description of the, the, the marking of time, the passing of time. So there are some things that you and I should expect in the meantime. Number one, that there are going to continue to be people saved. There are those who will continue to, to turn to Christ for salvation. Now, we know as we read in the New Testament that all the more as the day grows nearer, there are less and less sympathetic and open to the discussion of Jesus Christ being confronted with their sin and also being confronted, and <laughs> confronted is a terrible way to phrase it, but presented with the gift of God in his son, Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death. But what we should continue to expect is that people will still come to Christ. Remember when in 1 Peter chapter 3, when you talk about that, and it says that God is not, is, is not slack concerning his promises, but he's long-suffering to us, we're not willing to do any should perish. That's in the context of judgment, of the end times. In other words, God is staying his judgment, his wrath upon the earth, so that all who will can come to Christ. Thousand day, days of a thousand years, thousand years out of day. It has nothing to do with literal time, so to speak, but it has to do with God's timeline and, and his uh, foreknowledge. All of those things are tied up in there. But he's long suffering, he's patient, he's putting up with the sinfulness of mankind for those few who will turn to him. So, what we should expect is just as it said, many shall be purified and made white and tried. Okay, so here we have many shall be purified made white. I mean, that's a clear description of salvation. In some respects, there's even a, a reference here to what we read about in Revelation chapter 6. Those who are uh, killed during the tribulation period, which in many respects is going to be a lot of Israelites, a lot of Jews, and then being clothed in white. And we find them before the throne of God there in Revelation chapter 6, saying, hey, when, it, when are we going to be avenged, essentially? And God responds to that, and he says, listen, it's coming. He will execute justice. But there, it says they're going to be tried. There's a purification or a sanctification, if you will, of God's people. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, God is in the interest of conforming us to the image of his son. 
So many of that's going to happen, right? People are going to get saved. People are going to grow into the image of Christ. They're going to continue to be his ambassadors. We should expect that to happen. The other thing we should expect is that the wicked are going to do wickedly. <laughs> it's unfair of us as believers to expect the world to act like Christians. They don't. And they won't. There are certain cultural influences that may limit or restrain their sinful desires, but their view and their understanding of things is skewed by the world that we live in, by their own sin. The wicked will do wickedly. It will always be true as long as we are on this earth. Till Jesus returns, the wicked will do wicked. <laughs> okay. The wise will grow in understanding. Okay. The wise will grow in understanding. The wicked won't understand it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to uh, grab onto the message of Jesus Christ. It's just not going to click for them. But the wise, those who are willing to submit themselves to the truth of God's word, and they will be those because there are those who will be saved. They will grow in understanding. The wise grow in understanding. And at the end, it, it, he, he talks about from the abomination that makes desolate, there should be 1,290 days, which is a more, 30 days more than we had in the past. We're, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I just throw it out here for, in case you didn't notice it, but Right, In the end, so from the time the abomination of desolation is set up to the end, till Christ's return, is still three and a half years. It's like, if you calculate it, 3.8338, it's, it's still three and a half years. Okay, but there's an extra 30 days that wasn't mentioned before. And I don't think we need to make a big deal about it. We don't know what they are. I'll just tell you, tell you that right now. Spoiler. We don't need to know what they are. We'd be told. Okay. But there is still three and a half years. It still fits within that time frame. Okay, the, the abomination that makes desolate. Um, we have a reference here in, in verse 11. We find it in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. We've already looked at that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, We've, as we turn to Revelation chapter 12, we'll just remind you that Jesus looked forward to the to the abomination of the make it desolate, spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24, 15, as something still future. So what we have to conclude is that it wasn't fulfilled in history. And specifically, it wasn't fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, which is, which is a common thing that people will throw out there, but that was predated Jesus, and yet Jesus himself said there's still something coming. So we, we've concluded all along with Jesus that there is some yet future event being described uh, as the abomination of desolation. Not only that, but we have three and a half years, 1,260 or 1,290 days, 42 months, until the end of time, until all of that comes to a, to, to a close. Yet, what do we find that Antiochus Epiphanes was centuries ago? 
Israel still faces persecution. Jesus hasn't returned. We don't find any of those things fulfilled. So there's a real problem. There's either a, we either read the Bible and it says what it says and it means what it says, and that's what we trust, or we have to imply or impose upon it some other outside meaning. It's metaphorical. We have to somehow grasp at straws, in my opinion. Okay. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. They don't miss the symbolism here. The 12 stars are a key to our understanding. This is a picture of Israel, this, and it becomes very clear. And she being with trial, child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, heaven seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Right? Just think about all the, the, the pictures that we looked at the, of the beast of the Antichrist, him being a dragon, him being uh, ha- having the seven horns or the seven crowns, the seven nations. All, all of that stuff comes together here to make this picture. And his tail drew the third part of the heaven, uh, of the stars of the heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Antichrist, Satan here, this, he does not want this child to be born. And if it is born, he wants to destroy it immediately. That's the idea. Consider what Jesus, or, or, or excuse me, not what Jesus said, but what, well, yeah, what Jesus said to Adam and Eve in the garden. <laughs> Listen, Genesis 3.15. This is, this is what's anticipated by the dragon, that listen, he's going to destroy me, so therefore I have to take care of him. When Jesus was born, what happened? Right? Herod sends the soldiers out. Not We're going to kill all the kids under two years old. Why? Because we want to make sure we wiped it out. We're going to do everything that we possibly can, as horrible as it may be, because I want to win. I don't want to be destroyed. I, want, I don't want to be overcome. I will be the most high. Verse 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's a thousand two hundred and ninety days. So we have Jesus Christ, we have all of this taken, we have uh, Jesus Christ taken. Now, now just like many other prophecies and those kinds of things in Scripture, there's a drastic gap, right? We have the birth of Jesus Christ, and now we have this woman, Israel, that flees into the wilderness to the place prepared for, for her by God and is taken care of for the same period of time that we read about in the book of Daniel. Come with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth. This is speaking of the the same beast, that dragon, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power is given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. Does anybody happen to know exactly how many years 40 and 2 months is? I'll just give you a time, times and a half, yeah, three and a half years. It's all the same. And it doesn't matter if you use 360 days, like a Jewish calendar word, or 365 days. The difference is so small, it's still three and a half years. And all it has to do is fit within the three and a half years to be an accurate prophecy, right? It doesn't have to be 
right here on the nose. It just has to fit within the three and a half years. Now, we have this purification of Israel that's going to take place. And we've talked about this, but I want to talk about it again because there's a purpose for this purification. And the purpose for this purification is in many respects the same reasons that we experience purification, sanctification as believers. Okay, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 first. Hebrews chapter 12. And this is where we read about God who is our father. And because he loves us, he's going to chasten us. So we have the motivation of God's love. Therefore, he chastens us. And in fact, it says every son that he receives to himself, he chastens. Verse 10, Hebrews 12, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. So he's speaking of our earthly fathers and he's making this comparison. But he, speaking of God, he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. We might be partakers of his holiness. God has told the nation of Israel and he's told even believers, says, be ye holy even as I am holy. We have the sanctification process in the life of the believer that we read about in Romans chapter 8, where we are conformed into the image of God. And if necessary, God is going to chasten us, is going to correct us to bring about, as we read in the next verse, the peaceable fruit of righteousness as we're exercised by that chastening. I'm not going to stand here and tell you why, because I don't know why. God is who he is, and he gets to decide who and when and where. And it isn't my place or anyone else's place to say, well, gee, that seems unfair to the nation of Israel that they would have to go through such hardship to, to, to learn their lesson. It's not my place to question. But what I do know is that God is in his, in his sovereignty bringing them to the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Persecution throughout the church's history has weeded out those who are Christians in name only. It has historically weeded out those who are the Sunday pew-sitting Christians to those who are the real born-again believers. And in many respects, we find that same principle at work here, and that here are God's people. And if we read, and I might be getting ahead of myself, I think we are, yeah, yeah, I am a little bit, but we're, we're going to come to that. Right here, here is God's Israel. And we looked at this in, Rev, in Romans chapter 11 when we were there, and we're going to go there here in just a minute. This is God's Israel. These are the believing people in Israel. Right? Those who are, uh, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to, Anyone to confuse, I'm not saying that we as the church replace Israel, but there is one people of God, everyone by faith. We'll look at that here in just a moment. But God is going to purify Israel. He's going to bring about the, the separation of the heretics and those who are believing. And not only that, those who are believing will be conformed into the image of his son. They'll be as being exercised by that correction, by that ultimately by the love of God himself to the extent that they may yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in their life. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, which is an odd place to go in reference to uh, Israel. 
because it's talking about the church, but I want to make an application here. I want to make an application. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we read about the church of Laodicea. Now, this is a church that's lukewarm, right? They're not hot. They're not cold. And Jesus says, listen, it would be better that you were hot or cold. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's what he says. I'm going to vomit you out. That's pretty strong terms there. But in Revelation chapter 3, when it's talking about the Laodicean church, we have similar to some of the things that, have, that are discussed with Israel uh, in their history. God told the nation of Israel, he said, listen, when you come into the promised land, don't get puffed up when you're living in houses you didn't build, when you're uh, drinking out of wells that you didn't dig, so on and so forth, when you harvest the crops that you didn't build. He says, don't get puffed up and forget me who has given them all to you. You know, let's, let's dive into to Revelation chapter 3. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Right here is the nation of Israel as a people who have continually rejected their creator who went out of his way to institute covenant with them and to on special terms, so to speak, say, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to bring about the Messiah, the promised deliverer through you. Yet over and over again, as we read in, in Isaiah chapter 53, right? He came unto his own and his own received him. Not, is that in Isaiah 53? I'm pretty sure it is. It's in the Bible. In the, as the Bible says, came unto his own and his own received him not. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected him who they should have been watching for and eagerly awaiting. Verse 18, I took counsel, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. He's saying, listen, all this... And I'm just going to sum it up this way. All the stuff that you have that you take pride in, that you have established yourself in, that you stand upon, he says, listen, it's, it's nothing. I would counsel you, I, the living God, Jesus Christ, counsel you to buy gold from me, to get your clothing here, to, to everything that you need. What you're going to stand on is found in me and me alone. That's the point of what he's saying here. There's specific reference to the eye salve, and there's a lot more to unpack there. And I think it probably even applies to Israel. Right? You can't see, so take this salve, put this on your eyes so that you may clearly see. He says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And there's this description here of the church, but you see how it's applicable even to Israel. How that if they will come to Christ, he will, if he open the door of their heart, that he'll come in and he'll sup with them. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And just pause there for a moment, right? With this description, the preaching of the cross, here is Jesus Christ, the substitutionary lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The preaching of that simple message that Jesus Christ condemned sin, became condemned as sinful, that we might be made his righteousness. That he came out of the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. To the world that is perishing, that is a foolish message. And I'm convinced that it isn't so foolish that in their eyes, from the standpoint that, that somebody would do something for them, at least not today, I mean, because today everybody should do everything for me. But what I am convinced is foolishness and has always been foolishness is the idea that I need somehow to be saved that I am somehow guilty, that I am standing here condemned already. That's what I think they find the most foolish. And I think that's borne out when we see Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We discuss that all the time. Because it is the common problem that the world faces. He continues on then, verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And over and over they came to Jesus, listen, give us a sign. What is the sign of who you are? And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to give you one sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Three days and I'll be raised again. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. We're talking about wisdom here. This isn't it has to be logical. It has to add up. It has to, that's, that's what it means. And it makes no sense that Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous, would somehow come and would give himself for us. That is illogical from their standpoint. There's cultural influence in that understanding. None of that changes, though, what we preach. He says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews. It is a stumbling block. And under the Greeks, it is foolishness. It's foolish. It's not wisdom from their perspective. The Jews, it's a stumbling block. We put him to death because he claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. You're telling me that to be saved, I have to accept him as God in the flesh, Emmanuel? Yep. We see Israel's hard-heartedness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 for just a moment because we, want, we have to have the foundation of understanding. And we mentioned it earlier. We alluded to it, but let's look at it. In this chapter, we have the description of, of the Gentiles, you and I, being grafted into the family of faith. And there's this whole description in this, this long discussion about how Israel, because of their, their unbelief, 
has made room for the Gentiles to be grafted into that household of faith. And ultimately, as we let's, let's look, read verse 23, and they also, speaking of Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, right? If we don't stay in unbelief, if we come to faith, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So in the middle of this discussion about Israel and, and the household of faith and being grafted in, we have this statement, listen, Israel can be brought into the household of faith too, but how? By the same mechanism that we're brought in, by the same mechanism that Abraham was brought in, by the same mechanism that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and all of them were brought in faith. If they come to belief in Jesus Christ, if they come to acceptance, as we read in a couple chapters earlier in the book of Romans, they confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is in fact who he said he was, God in the flesh. then they can be grafted in. Those branches that are broken off, hey, we made some room rather than the Gentiles. Now, they can still come to faith. They're not excluded, but the mechanism for their brought, being brought into the household of God, into the family of God, is the same. It's always by faith. Okay, so not everyone who lives in Israel currently is going to be saved. But all of God's Israel, all those who are genuine believers of Jesus Christ, will be saved. And I think that's really what's borne out here in, he, in Romans chapter 11. Now jump with me to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 20 and 21. So we're talking about the end times. We're talking about those things that are happening in Israel's yet future and, and God dealing with the hardness of their heart, chastening them so that they can come to him and have the peaceable fruit of right, righteousness. Excuse me. Now this, is being, this is discussing more than just Israel, but it's still applicable because this is, this is part of their future. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. Just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and here are all the plagues, all the confirmations of what is happening in Egypt, we find that the similar, similar style of plagues, maybe not the same plague, but the, the similar style of plagues being poured out by God upon the world are rejected by men as confirmation of what his word says is true. They won't repent. They still don't turn. The hardness of heart still exists. Couple of passages in Proverbs. Let's go there. Proverbs chapter two. We're going to do them backwards, just because. Proverbs chapter two. <clears throat> verses one through five. 
My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou shalt so so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Right? There's this description here of seeking after it. But the history of Israel from Jesus Christ forward is this putting off, this forsaking. It's a stumbling block. It's something they have to get over to come to faith. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. Yet Israel doesn't want to do that. Not, that's a very general statement. We already know there's going to be those who do come to faith. Now turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47. <clears throat> This is representative of Israel in Jesus' day of Israel's hard-heartedness, and it's representative of hard-heartedness in general. But, in, but here we're looking at the stumbling block of Jesus Christ. And that same stumbling block, that same heart remains in Israel to this day. They answered him, and they said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if Abraham... If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What did Abraham do that was so significant? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as faith. Or excuse me, as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. You would do the works of Abraham. You would operate in faith. That's not what they're doing. Verse 40. But now you seek to kill me and a man that, uh, that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You're doing the opposite of what Abraham would do. 41, you do the deeds of your father. And this is a very strong statement. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus talked about a whole different father. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and come from God. Neither came I myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. We take upon us, when we accept Christ, we take upon us the name of God. And in other words, when we hear truth, we respond to truth. They're of a different father. They're somewhere else. And so when they hear truth, they cringe and they rebel against it. Verse 47, he that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you are not of God. 
I think that in many respects, God is going to purify Israel because there is a continuing need for their hearts to be turned toward him. And not all of them will, just as not all Gentiles come to faith. But those who do are brought back into the household of faith. They're grafted back in to the family of God. This is yet future. This is something that Israel is yet going to do. There's, I, I'm convinced that it would be unprecedented as far as our experience goes. It will, there will be revival in Israel. There's going to be persecution as a result of it, but there will be revival in Israel. There's still a lot of things that are a mystery, right? We have no exact dates. We have this discrepancy between 1260 and 1290 days, 30 days extra. And then in verse 12, uh, it says, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335 uh, days or, or five and 30 days, right? So, so we have this other 45 days. And I'll tell you what, that is not described anywhere else in scripture. Just thrown out here. And that's fine. Right? Here's the thing. God, who is sovereign, doesn't have to tell us everything that he's going to do, the order that he's going to do it in, how long it's going to take. What happens in these extra days, I don't know for sure, but one theory that, and, and really there's nothing, no biblical evidence for it, so just throwing it out there as a theory, straight up theory, is that we have the restoration, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is pretty miraculous, and that it would only take 30 days, and, and then we have the judgment of the nations. And when I think about God's judgment, and I think about those things happening, I always envision it as an instantaneous thing. But we have a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that's going to be initiated, and, and those who come back to rule and reign with him, perhaps there's some time that, don't know, don't know. Maybe this extra 75 days is just those couple of things happening. We don't know. There are still mysteries. There are still those things that are un, left unsaid in Scripture in regard to the end times. But the things that we need to watch for are clearly given to us. Those things that we really should know about are given to us. We don't need to know what the extra 30 days are. We don't need to know what the extra 45 days are in addition to that. It'll make plenty of sense to those who are living in that time. Daniel is told in verse 9, we skipped over it, but we're going to go back and read it. When he asks the question, what? The answer that he gets first, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, this isn't the first time that we read this in the book of Daniel, but we're talking about this substantive uh, of a prophecy, there's this real sense that, listen, this is all the information that's going to be given. No further prophecy is going to be given through Daniel. This is it. In verse 4, we read the same thing. He just gives him, he closes up the vision, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. In other words, the, the the understanding of what is written here, though we might not fully understand it here, becomes more and more clear to those who are there. This isn't written for Daniel. There's encouragement here for Daniel because he sees the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God at play. This is written for those who are going to go through it. 
And I'm convinced that Daniel 10, 11, and 12, and even part, vast portions of Revelation are going to make a lot more sense to the people who are here going through it than even to you and I. That's who it's written for. To encourage them, to give them that foundation upon which they can build. So Daniel's told, listen, you don't need to know. Seal it up. Seal it up. In other words, roll it up, put your seal on it so that nobody can add anything or take anything away from it. It's finished. That's the idea. In Revelation chapter 10, we find a very similar thing. Let me just turn there for a moment and read it to you. Uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. When the seven thunders had uttered, uttered their voices, I was about to write. Remember that John here is receiving this vision from Jesus Christ. It's the revelation from Jesus Christ to John. And so the seven thunders uttered their voices, and John is about to write something. And he stopped. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Those are off limits, John. Don't put them down. It's finished. That's not information that needs to be given. And in the same sense, Daniel is being told, seal it up. It's finished. It's done. No more writing will need to take place. And we see the effects of all of this upon Daniel more than once. We've seen him ill. We've seen him down for weeks on end as he understands and he sees and he, and he grieved for those things that his countrymen, that Israel, is going to have to go through. And Daniel is comforted in verse 13. He says, Go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. Daniel's told, listen, and remember that Daniel's old at this point, probably into his 90s, though we don't know exactly how old. But he's an old man at this point, and Daniel's comfort, and he's told, this is the command that God gives him, go and enjoy the rest of your life. As short as it may be, Daniel, go and enjoy. Don't fret about this. It's sealed up. It's not for you. Go enjoy. And he's promised rest. He's promised rest. And, and when he's talking about rest here, this is, a, this is him, uh, this is his death. But the promise for, for Daniel, as a faithful man, as we look at somebody who is looking for this country that is not built here, as he's, as he's in faith, operating in trust that God is redeeming and going to redeem Israel, he is promised rest. Remember that in second, excuse me, in Luke chapter 16, we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and they die. And the rich man goes uh, to Hades, it says. He goes to hell. But while he's in hell, he sees over here Lazarus, the beggar Lazarus, laying in the bosom of Abraham, which is, you know, I mean... I don't know what it really looks like. This is a vision, right? I mean, this, is a, this is something that Jesus... <laughs> Okay. But he looks over here and he can see paradise and he sees the rest associated with it. There's a, there's the, the word of God to, to Daniel is, listen, you are going to receive rest. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, says, For we know, this is believers, right? This is, these are Christians, you and I. For we know that our earthly house of this tabernacle was dissolved, that if our earthly house, our, our body, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. There's something else out there for you and I. We, we talked about, excuse me, the resurrection and all of those things. Uh, and there's an expectation and a hope for believers of that resurrection. But even in the meantime, uh, before the resurrection, there is something out there that we get to look forward to and expect. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But I'm convinced that once Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, when, when, when they were talking about leading captivity captive, I'm thinking that Daniel gets to now leave Abraham's bosom, and he gets to be in the presence of the Lord because the propitiation, the payment has been made on his behalf. It's credited to his account already. It's credited to his account already by faith, but the payment hasn't been received, so to speak. Right? The check was in the mail. And when God says the check's in the mail, it's a sure thing. I mean, you're, it's good as, good as done. But at the perfect time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and bear the sins of the world. And when he did, Daniel gets to go to heaven. I don't think Abraham's bosom, what we read about it in Luke chapter 16, I don't think that exists any longer in that sense. Hades still exists. And that's the default position of mankind. We are bound and destined for hell the moment that we're born. And that's a, there may be a little more to unpack there, but we get the point, right? That is man's default position. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, Daniel wasn't just a prophet, was he? I mean, he was, he was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. He was a, a diplomat. He had all kinds of other responsibilities in the Babylonian Empire besides being a prophet. He was a prophet, and that was probably his most important function. That wasn't all he did. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. As we wrap this book up, I want to co co conclude with this application for you and I this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, let's look at verses 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. So here's Daniel, and as a prophet, he stands out. I mean, the, 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 the amount of prophecy and the substantial nature of the prophecy given him stands out. But that wasn't the only race, so to speak, that Daniel was running. Daniel was running on all these other fronts. And even in the midst of all of that, he honored and glorified God. From the moment that we read about Daniel in chapter 1, here he is brought in as this young man. I want to honor the Lord. I don't want to defile myself with the meat of the king. In other words, I don't want my trust to ever be transferred from anything but God. Therefore, we'll eat the vegetables and we'll eat the water. Because we know where our sustenance comes from. 
And as we progress through and we see Daniel in all of these avenues, in his diplomatic states, and we see God's faithfulness and exalting into positions of authority and leadership as a result of his faith. Daniel, at the end of his life, just as Paul says, listen, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I didn't turn to the left or to the right, but I stayed on track. And I did that which God had called me to do. And it was, in some sense, Daniel's calling was clear because he was being brought into positions. And sometimes we think that our calling is less clear. Because well, I'm not a prophet. And boy, that's really, but here's the thing. He wasn't just a prophet, was he? He did all the other jobs that God put him in. He did all the other things that God asked him to do. In the middle of his captivity, in the middle of his hardships, in the middle of uh, government decrees to actually commit idolatry, all of those things, Daniel said, no, I'm going to walk in faith. No matter where God put him. And so for you and I, as we look at our lives, as we look at the things that God has put us into, the things that he has clearly called us to, we have kids, we've been clearly been called to be a parent, a dad, or a mom. If you are a kid, you are clearly called to be a kid, to do those things that God tells you to do, to honor your parents. The jobs that we work, the positions that we end up in, those things that, that we find ourselves brought to by God's sovereign hand are the opportunities and the places where we get to shine for his glory. Where we get to be those witnesses and ambassadors. That's the portion of enemy territory that we have been tasked with specifically to go and win for him. And over and over as we see Daniel through that entire book, what do we find? That when he stands, when he is resolute in his faith, the response over and over again is we will worship the God of Daniel. We will worship the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We will worship him because he's shown himself strong, because he's shown himself faithful, because he was greater and mightier than anything that we could think or conceive to do to them. He finished the race. He fought the good fight. Therefore, it says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. There is a position for Daniel in the future. We read that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 13 as well. Let me just read that to you again. Go thy way till the, till the end be, for thou shalt rest. You're going to die, Daniel. There's a long period of time between all this. But he also tells them this. And stand, you will stand in thy lot at the end of days. Daniel, I got a job for you in the future. I have a position for you in the future. I have something for you to yet do in the future, after you've died. After You talk about the hope of the resurrection. Paul goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, not to me only, but also, but unto all them that all, also that love his appearing. 
There's a crown of righteousness. There's a position there. The righteous judge, God himself, will honor, honor us and give us in that day our lot. Just as he has sovereignly given us things in this life to do, as we look forward to eternity, there are things that I'm convinced he's going to have us do. We're going to stand with him in the position and in the things that he has called us to do. Now, I don't know what that is. I have no clue what that is. I might have some indication, but I don't know what it is. And I definitely don't know what it is for you. But what I do know is that the way that I live now, how I operate today, what I, how faithful I am in the venues that God calls me to in this life will affect everything going forward in the next life. What position, what lot am I going to have as a result of what I've done here? Do I want to be like Paul and Daniel? who were faithful in small things, though from our perspective, they look pretty big. They were faithful in small things. So that in Jesus' return and in his future kingdom and in eternity, they have large things. What is our lot? Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We praise you for the opportunity to study through your word, Lord, to be challenged and equipped by it. And I pray that as we conclude this study through the book of Daniel, Lord, that our life and how we live it in faith, in trust, in operating uh, in tandem with you and the things that you clearly called us to, Lord, that that would be the thing that would separate us from from others, that our faithfulness in whatever may be considered small, that our faithfulness in those things that uh, would seem to be mundane, an unrelenting faith and trust in you, no matter what comes our way, no matter when it comes, no matter what it looks like, God, that that would separate us from those who crumble, who, who, who will under the strain and under the pressure and under, would get caught up in those things and distracted by the mundane and those tedious little things that fill our lives. God, by your grace, help us to be those that would serve you, that will represent you, that will stand in faith completely and wholly. Lord, we look forward to the time when everything is reconciled and remade and brought, brought back to subjection to your will and plan and purpose. We look forward to our eternity and, and the relationship, the physical face-to-face relationship we'll enjoy through that period. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood that makes all of that possible. We thank you, Lord, for the love that you showed us in that, that sacrifice, Lord, and for the love that you continue to show us that even while we are yet in our flesh, Lord, you would do all things necessary, even chasing in us when necessary to purify us and bring about peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. You are so faithful, Lord. 
we thank you for it. We ask and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.